0: In these last few chapters of Genesis that we've been preaching on the past few weeks, God has been dealing with humanity as a whole, uh, purging the whole earth in the flood, dispersing all the peoples at Babel. Now God narrows focus to one man, a man named Abram. And in Genesis 3, God had promised that the seed of the woman would come to redeem humanity from the seed of the serpent. And now this promised seed line of Abram and his children will take center stage in the story of redemption. So we come this morning to the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And as we turn there, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you speak to us in your word. So we ask that you would grant us insight into your plan to redeem all things through your chosen one. Through Abram and through those who would come from his line, and ultimately through the greater Abram, your son, Jesus the Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Genesis chapter 11 tells us of a man named Abram. He's a descendant of Noah through the line of Sheth. He is the son of a man named Terah, and he's married to a woman named Sarai. His name means exalted father which seems ironic since we're told that Sarai was barren. She had no child. We're also told that Abram lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, archaeologists debate its exact location, possibly present-day Iraq, what the Bible later refers to as Babylon. But we are told that Abram and his family left that place, intending to go to the land of Canaan, present-day Palestine. It's a long and arduous journey, especially in those days, especially for 75 years young Abram. So what could have possessed him to pack up shop and move the whole camp to this foreign land? Well, it appears that one starry night in the cool desert air, Abram heard God speaking to him. Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 describe the one-sided conversation for us. Now, You won't see these verses on coffee mugs or calendars, Uh, as none of us are sheiks in ancient Babylon. They don't seem particularly applicable to our day-to-day lives. And yet, the Apostle Paul is crazy enough to claim this was God preaching the gospel story to Abram some 2,000 years before the Christ of the gospel story is even born. I suppose that's why my seminary professors made us memorize this passage before we could pass our first theology class. They knew what Paul knew. They knew that these three verses set the trajectory for the next 65 books in the Bible. So if you want to know what God is doing to redeem his fallen creation, here's where he lays out the plan. And once God gets a notion to do something, he doesn't stop until it is finished. So how does God intend to set this broken down world right side up once again? Genesis 12, 1 tells us, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Give care to each facet of this ancient gospel. First, God calls Abraham to something. Follow me. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. If I ask you to leave your home, and to leave your family, and to leave the great state of Nebraska, or the whole union of great states, not many of you would be excited about that prospect. It was even more difficult for an ancient person. They couldn't just hop on a plane and go back whenever they got homesick. Abram will never see his place and his people again, but there's more to it the ancient world was, was different than ours. The ancients believed each place was haunted by its own particular spirits. Each city had its own divine protector. Each clan of people had its own unique gods. And your father's household, that wasn't just the shack your dad built. You paid homage to your fathers, your deceased ancestors, who had just as much say in your life as you did, if not more. And this was actually true for Abram as well. Later on in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2, God will tell the sons of Abram, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Turns out Father Abram was a bit of a pagan. He worshipped the gods of Ur, the gods his fathers had worshipped. The moon, the stars, the sun, who knows? But those were the gods Abram knew, the old gods. The idols of stone and wood he kept in his tent. And he bowed before them and prayed to them. And they remained ever silent. So imagine his surprise when the new god just started talking to him out of the blue. Not only talked to him, but called him. Called him to leave his homeland, to leave behind his household gods, to leave behind all he had known. It's a difficult thing to do in our day. In the ancient world, it was unheard of. And what did this speaking God call Abram to do? Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house To the land that I will show you. To the land that I will show you. So it's not only a call, right? It's a promise. You have to leave your land, but I will take you to a new land. As he gave Adam the land of Eden, as he gave Noah the purified earth, now God promises to give a land to their son, Abram. God makes another promise, verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation. God promises Abram a land, but he also promises him descendants to fill that land. Just as he called Adam and Noah to multiply and fill the earth, now God calls Abram to multiply and fill this new land. There's a problem here, right? Exalted father has no kids. Is this new God playing some kind of prank on poor Abram? But even here at the very beginning, look at what God actually promises. I will make of you a great nation. Now this idea will be difficult for Abram and Sarai. They will continually imagine that they are the ones to accomplish this impossible feat. But God tells him right from the start, I will do this. What I promise, I will accomplish. This will be done by the power of God. And God continues with the promises. And I will bless you and make your name great. Our ears prick up when we hear this. Something from the previous chapter, wasn't it? Ah, yes, at the Tower of Babel, the people had rebelled against God in order to make a name for themselves. But God promises to make Abram's name great for him. And this is what God intended all along, that he would glorify his chosen one at the proper time. Adam and Eve grasped after the glory before it had been given. The people of Babel grasped after that glory before it had been given. But here God promises Abram, I will make your name great. It means Abram will have a reputation. Other peoples and other nations will see what this God is doing for Abram through Abram, and they will know there is something different about Abram's God. I will make your name great. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, so that you will be a blessing. And here we see that this blessing of Abram is not just for Abram's good. God is blessing Abram so that, in order that, Abram might be a blessing to others. Now, this is our first hint that even though God is, in a sense, narrowing down his focus to one man and to one nation, to Abram and to his descendants, the people of Israel... Still, God is doing that focusing, that narrowing, for the benefit of all humanity. God is not blessing Abram just for Abram's sake. He is working through Abram to bless the world. God says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And so God's going to treat the world the way the world treats Abram. In this way, Abram, we see, is a kind of mediator between God and man. Those wishing to be blessed by God must honor God's chosen one. And all who would attack God's chosen one will incur God's wrath. And we'll see an example of that very shortly. And lastly, God promises Abram, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So again, God reiterates and expands upon that earlier point. Abram is blessed in order to be a blessing. And who is to be the recipient of this blessing? All the families of the earth. In Hebrew, all the families of the ground, the Adamah. God had cursed the Adamah because of Adam's sin. And so our once fruitful relationship with the earth is now often fruitless and futile, because we have rebelled against our creator. So when God says that all the families of the earth shall be blessed in Abram, we can see Abram is one who reverses that curse, who brings blessing instead. In this, Abram is a new Noah. You remember Noah's father had prophesied, out of the ground, the Adamah, that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us rest. Through Abram, God will bring blessing to the people of the cursed earth once again. So perhaps the apostle was on to something when he said that this was God's gospel sermon to Abraham. This is the call of Abram. But when you think about it, uh, there's very little call, and there's a whole lot of promises and commitment from God. Some people say there's no grace in the Old Testament. I don't know what book they're reading. Grace is unmerited favor, right? It's favor that we don't deserve. Well, look at all of the favor that God pours out on this guy who wasn't even worshiping him five minutes ago. God has promised Abram a land. God has promised Abram descendants. God has promised Abram a name. And God has promised to bless Abram and make Abram a blessing to all the families of the earth. That looks like grace to me. The rest of the book of Genesis and the 65 other books in your Bible, this is what they are about in one form or another, seeing this promise to Abram come to fulfillment from glory to glory and ultimately and most gloriously fulfilled in Abram's greater son, Jesus. And and at times, it's quite a wild ride, right? At various moments, each of these promises to Abram will come under threat. At times, it looks like the rebellion of his chosen ones will undo or even reverse these promises. But God has promised, and God keeps his word, and we get to watch that story unfold and see just how he does it time and time again. But right here in Genesis 12, it is simply this, a call and a whole bunch of promises given to one man, to Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans. And as it turns out, Abram takes God at his word. Verse 4, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. You remember blameless Noah. God whispered this crazy prophecy of a watery cataclysm in his ear, and delivered this harebrained scheme to build a floating house which would double as a zoo. And we are simply told, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Well, here's blameless Abram. God tells him to pack up everything he has, leave all he knows behind, travel to some foreign land where the octogenarian and his barren wife are to give birth to an entire nation. And Abram is just crazy enough to do it. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. The Bible calls this And what does Abram do when he finally arrives in the land? He does what Noah did when he stepped out of the ark. He does what all God's chosen ones do when they begin their ministry. He establishes right worship. The Bible says, When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. You see, already the promises are under threat, aren't they? The Canaanites were in the land, we're told. But God makes a promise to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so Abram begins to take possession of the land, not by grasping after it, but by establishing right worship there. He's going throughout the land, setting up altars to the Lord, calling upon the name of the Lord, worshiping the speaking God who has appeared to him and has promised him this place. We sometimes have big ideas about how we can go out and change the world and transform the world and fix all its problems. But God's idea is that we first come in. We first come into the sanctuary, into his presence, so that we can be transformed, so that we can be shaped by feasting on his word at pulpit and altar. God will have his dominion in us established before he sends us out to take dominion over his world as those shaped in the image of his son. In terms of the calling of Abram, we have to receive God's blessing in the worship service so that we can go out and be a blessing to the families of the earth. And so Abram's priority in the land is not his own prosperity, but right worship of God and ours should be the same. But when you're trying to be faithful, when you're trying to honor God's call, when you're trying to establish right worship in the land, there will always be a snake slithering in the garden. Genesis 12.10 tells us, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. All the speaking God had promised begins to come under threat doesn't it the promised land is full of canaanites the promised land is now not producing fruit the promised land is uninhabitable you promised us the land but it is a barren land how can we live there and what about that promise of descendants of offspring of a great nation to come from abram kind of hard to have a family if there's no food for them to eat right So all the promises you see seem to be threatened. And so Abram goes to Egypt, the most powerful and prosperous nation in the region at this time. Perhaps there is food there. But as he does so, Abram fears this might entail another threat to the promises. Verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife. I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance and when the Egyptians see you they will say this is his wife then they will kill me but they will let you live. How can Abram and Sarai become a nation if the Egyptians steal Sarai and kill Abram? Remember in Genesis 3 God promised redemption would come through the seed of the woman who would triumph over the seed of the serpent. But now we have this threat to the promised seed of the woman, to the offspring of Abram and Sarai, a threat to the seed of the woman before he has even been born. So Abram comes up with a plan. He tells Sarai, verse 13, Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. A lot of people get real hung up on this verse, right? One, it appears Abram is counseling Sarai to lie, and lying is bad. Two, it makes Abram look like a coward who would put his bride at risk to save his own skin. But before we jump to any conclusions, let's point out a few things. First, the Bible never calls Abram out for this, right? Nowhere in the Old Testament or the New is Abram rebuked or criticized for his actions here. Now, if he was in the wrong, then none of the biblical authors bothered to point it out. Now, I'm not saying that excuses him. I'm saying at the very least, that means maligning Abram is not really the main point of this story, right? Secondly, Sarah is Abram's half-sister. We learn that in Genesis 17 when Abram employs this same strategy a second time. They share the same father, though not the same mother. So for what it's worth... She is his sister. Third, even if Abram is intending to deceive the Egyptians, that in itself is not necessarily sinful. We've talked about this many times in the past, but there is a kind of allowable deception in the Bible, throughout the Bible. Essentially, the scriptures allow that deception is sometimes the only recourse God's people have when dealing with tyrants. Tyrants right? It, it's not deception for personal gain or for personal benefit, right? That would be sinful. This is strategic deception to be used only as a way to prevent tyrants from committing wickedness against God and God's people, right? You could compare it to faithful Germans hiding their Jewish neighbors from the Nazis, right? We think that kind of deception is justified because it prevents wickedness and it saves lives, And we do see this kind of strategic deception being practiced in the Bible, especially when the promised seed line, the seed of the woman, is being threatened by the seed of the serpent. And we don't have time to get into all of these examples, but they are myriad. Uh, Abram and Isaac both use this same rouse here a number of times rachel and jacob deceive isaac when he intends to disobey god's word and give the birthright to esau tamar deceives judah when he attempts to subvert god's law a deception which leads ultimately to the birth of david the hebrew midwives and moses's mother deceive pharaoh when he threatens to kill the hebrew children thus saving god's chosen redeemer moses rahab deceives the men of jericho when they would kill the 12 hebrew spies Jael deceives Sisera to save God's people from oppression. God himself counsels Samuel to deceive Saul when going to anoint David. And David, of course, deceives Saul and Achish to prevent them from murdering him. And many more examples could be given. The point is, the Bible allows for it, even celebrates this strategic deception of tyrants, especially when they threaten the seed of the woman and when the righteous have no other recourse. To protect themselves and so the biblical authors may be viewing Abrams deception in the same light and that's why they don't criticize him for it now regardless of how we understand the morality of Abrams actions we can at least see that he was shrewd enough to know how the Egyptians would act look at verse 14 when Abram entered Egypt the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Abram was right. Despite having plenty of wives and wealth and power already, Pharaoh grasps after more. And this wealthy sheik from a foreign land comes seeking his aid, and Pharaoh wants to take advantage of him. Again, this appears to be a disastrous threat to God's plan of redemption and to the promised seed of the woman. Now, if Pharaoh knew that Sarai was Abram's wife, he would have to kill Abram to take her. But as he believes Abram is Sarai's brother, all he needs do is offer a fitting dowry. And that's what we see in verse 16. For her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. Remember, Abram had said to Sarai, Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And he was right. For her sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. Now again, with our modern sensibilities, we question the morality of Abram's actions, but the ancient Israelites are presenting Abram here as a shrewd tactician who sees checkmate ten moves ahead of his opponent. Like Adam, like Abel, and Noah before him, we see now Abram surrounded by animals. And we see the size of his household growing with male and female servants. And so the text is showing God bringing his promises to fulfillment. Abram's house is being blessed despite being under the threat of the serpent. But Pharaoh's house is a different story. Verse 17, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Does that sound familiar? Because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now, who does the Lord rebuke in this story? It's not Abram, but Pharaoh. Pharaoh and his house are plagued because Pharaoh grasped after Abram's wife. But you say, he didn't know. And Pharaoh tries to take that same line. Verse 18, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Like Adam and Eve in the garden, Pharaoh tries to shift the blame. This is your fault, Abram. You made me do it. Oh, really? Abram made you take another wife. Is that accurate? Or is Pharaoh failing to see that he is just as plagued by greed and ambition as he is by the afflictions that have now befallen him? Pharaoh continues, Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. God has delivered Abram's wife out of the house of Pharaoh. And despite the threat to his life, to Sarai, his bride, and to the promised seed line, Abram emerges from the whole ordeal in pretty good shape. His household has grown, his flocks have grown, and he will be known as the wise old man who bested the king of Egypt. This story is about God fulfilling his promise. And God will continue be faithful to this promise as the story continues to unfold in the pages of scripture this is not the last time we will read a story like this right Abram will have descendants and at the end of the book of Genesis there will be another famine and it will force Abram's descendants to leave Canaan and go to Egypt just as he did and there God himself will allow his bride, Abram's descendants, the children of Israel, to fall under the grasping hand of a different pharaoh. The seed of the serpent will threaten the seed of the woman once again. This pharaoh will literally kill the sons of the Hebrews. He will threaten the deliverer, the chosen one, Moses. And when the children of Israel cry out to God, God will come to collect his bride. And he will plague the house of Pharaoh once again, but ten times over. The Lord will wipe out the seed of the serpent, even as he passes over the seed of Abram in mercy. And eventually that greater Pharaoh will relent as well. And he too will tell God's chosen one to take the bride and go. And as the children of Israel leave, the Egyptians will shower them with silver and gold and fine clothing, gifts they will use to build God's tabernacle. And so the sons of Abram will leave Egypt, a greater and more prosperous nation than when they had come, just as their father once did. You see, Abram's exodus in Genesis 12 is God foreshadowing the greater exodus to come. God will continue to remain faithful to the promises of Genesis 12. And the seed of the woman will continue despite all opposition from the seed of the serpent for 2,000 years. And then a greater Abram will appear, Jesus the Messiah. And during his earthly ministry, Jesus will outwit the serpent at every turn. He will frequently use shrewdness to elude the grasping hands of the new pharaohs, the scribes and Pharisees and chief priests of Israel. But when his time comes, instead of giving his bride over in his place, Jesus will give his life in place of his bride. He will give himself into the hands of sinners. And they will crucify the blameless one as a common criminal. And the plague of God's wrath for sin will not pass over him. It will fall squarely on his broken shoulders. He will yield up his spirit and he will die on the cross the death that we deserve. And the seed of the serpent will imagine that he has been victorious. He will think his grasping has succeeded. But the great deceiver will be deceived Because the seed of the woman will rise from the grave. And he will rise with greater glory than ever before. His own flesh restored and radiant and empowered and incorruptible. And he will plunder death and the grave. Redeeming Abram and Sarai and all their descendants who put their trust in the promises of God. And he will take his bride and go. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus the promise to Abraham finds its fulfillment in him. Because Jesus also left his Father's house in heaven to come and dwell with us in our flesh. And for his faithfulness even unto death, God has given him a land, not simply Jerusalem or Judea or even the whole land of Canaan. No, the Father has given Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. The whole world is the land of Jesus. And we look forward to a day when the Father will give him a new heavens and a new earth as his inheritance. Indeed, the land has been given to Jesus. And the Father has given Jesus not just one nation, but a worldwide church filled with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. In Jesus, Jew and Gentile have been united in one man, and so all who trust in Jesus have become heirs of the promise to Abram by faith. Truly, in Jesus Christ, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the Father has made the name of Jesus great, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What was promised to Abram has been delivered into the hands of Jesus with much greater glory once and for all. Therefore, let us continue to bless the name of Jesus, the greater Abram, God's chosen one, who faithfully followed the word of the Father and brought us our great exodus from sin and Satan, from death and the grave. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to be our mediator, to redeem us from sin and to adopt us into your family. You have given him the world. You have given him all authority. You have given him the nations as his inheritance. Grant us faith and trust to bless his name and to find in him our Lord and Savior. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.